As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Right. Good morning, New Haven. Good morning, Connecticut. Good morning, LA. Good morning to the world. Uh, today, I'm following up on some conversations we've really been having for the past three years. Uh, Tom Fricklin, thank you, Tom, for giving me the, this time on the air, and thank you, uh, 103.5 FM Radio New Haven, for giving me this time. But I started a series called Educators Talking uh, some three years ago, and we've been talking about the issues that have been pressing education, and particularly in the past year, we've been talking about not so much a teacher shortage, but teacher flight teachers fleeing from the classrooms, fleeing from our schools. We now know that we are down some 500,000 positions in, in public schools since before the pandemic. So that's a massive amount. So today's show, I, I've invited uh, two special guests and I invited them because it was something that uh, Dean Julian Velasquez Helic from the University of Kentucky, who by the way, their school is racking up uh, enrollment and leading the nation. But Julian said to me, he said, uh, we were talking about this teacher shortage on a previous show. And Julian said, you need to talk about the talk to the teachers that are in the classrooms right now, the people that are in the field, the people that are in the midst of this battle. And we need to talk to them about what would keep them, what would make them stay. So today I'm bringing you two special ladies who know what we need to keep them stay. So I'm going to start with uh, 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 and. Uh, I look at my images on here, it's me, then it's Christina, and then it's uh, Cynthia. So uh, Dr. Christian, I'm gonna ask you because when we met, we really just met like uh, maybe two weeks ago, we had some coffee, we hung out, and I found out that like, like we are siblings from another mother and we were having a great time drinking coffee and I was like, whoa. And, and uh, Dr. Christian, you come from a background of spending most of your career in public schools, working with those struggling behavioral students. And, and, and what struck me when we talked, and so the audience could understand why I invited you on the show, and you have published books, you have, uh, you have an extensive career uh, in this, and, and, and you had gotten to the point where you had decided to step back from the public schools and go into higher ed. And, and, and it struck me that you weren't fleeing, you weren't running. You were just reconfiguring, saying, I'm going to help others stay in this field. So, Dr. Christina, could you uh, tell us, uh, tell us, uh, start off with uh, a little bit about yourself and your passion? Yes, uh, I actually, to your point, I spent 28 years in public schools and uh, specifically working with children identified as having behavior disabilities. And um, I, as I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago when we met, I did take um, three years away from that population because anyone who works with the special needs population knows that you can get burnout. And I knew that I was burnout 
from working with that population, but I didn't want to leave um, education. I, I am very passionate about it. And I, I believe with every fiber of my being that it is um, through public education that we will continue to sort of uh, build up our society. It, there's not an option. Somebody has to do it. Somebody has to stay in it. And uh, so after 28 years, I realized my time was up working with um, within the public schools from K to 12. I was, um, I, I would say I aged out. I mean, I'm, I'm not old, but I'm definitely not as young as I used to be. I don't, <laughs> I don't have that, oh, that level of energy commitment <laughs> that I had with, with fighting the fight. And I think what actually, what actually happened was COVID. It was, um, I think COVID, although it was two years, I think it took about five years of my life um, because of the, the struggle. And Jesse, you and I talked about this yesterday. Um, what was expected of us during that time was, was um, simply put, it was unfair. Um, and I say that knowing what physicians went through and what, what uh, police officers went through, what first responders had to go through. Um, as I mentioned to Jesse, we went home on a Friday and we're told we couldn't come back and we needed to figure out how to teach online. And it had to have the same presentation that it had as if we were in a class. Mind you, none of us had ever <laughs> taught online. Um, so we literally had to go from bottoms and seats to a screen and figure it out as we go, but we had to make it look as if it was a flawless presentation. And this, despite the stress that we were under, the confusion, uh, we were promised that we would have all of the um, materials necessary to go safely within the school. We would have the masks, we would have, we, we didn't have anything and we had to make it look like we did. So um, when I say that that two years pretty much took five years of energy, I knew that um, this last year in the public schools was all I had left to give. And now the passion I've had to sort of refocus and know that that same love and passion that I have for the field, I now have to pour that in to the next generation while I'm still excited about it. You can't, you can't go wrong with that. And we'll come back to what you're gonna, what, what your present ideas are, but that's perfect. And Cynthia, uh, you're part of a unique, uh, I, I guess, educational movement, progressive educational movement. Uh, I know you're working on a, a progressive teachers network right now, but you've been part of Firefox. And so you should probably share some of that because people sure. may have forgotten that somewhere in the mountains of Appalachia, Georgia, there was a, a, a perfect blend, a perfect, beautiful storm of, of change in education happened. So could you tell us a little bit about that and who you are, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good morning, everybody. So Cynthia McDermott, um, I started teaching uh, 53 years ago. 
uh, as a start off as a high school teacher in inner city Philadelphia. I've taught a lot of grades in between, but I moved into higher education just as you did, Christina, um, so that I could uh, brainwash more people than just the little ones in my classroom, right? And um, I, I want to remember to share this book, Teaching is a Subversive Activity. I've always considered myself a subversive teacher. And for those of you that haven't read this book, which came out in 1969, you know, if you want a little, you know, pump in the arm to remember that, you know, things were a little different at certain points and we can get back there, highly recommend teaching as a subversive activity. I've always required it of all my students. What Jesse's referring to is Foxfire, which started uh, more than 50 years ago in Raymond Gap, Georgia. And it was really based on uh, the notions of John Dewey and the child-centered classroom, doing work in the classroom where the student and the teacher and the community are connected to, as you said, Christina, make uh, a common, our commons, a stronger place to support a democracy, to support a civics model so that we're all engaged in this amazing experiment that got started you know, more than 200 years ago. And so the Foxfire core practices were designed by teachers and by students working together to really look at the classroom holistically. It, was not a, it wasn't a process that was just like, this is what you have to do. The Foxfire approach, which has influenced my work just as John Dewey has influenced my work, to really look at centering the classroom on the child that that becomes the most important thing because that's why we're there. We're there for the kids. And so Foxfire is, as Jesse said, maybe I'll talk about it toward at the end, but in, so I've now become a retired old lady. So Christina, no. you got a long ways to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I've, because I didn't know what else to do um, and I love working with teachers. I've been doing that for years and years and years and years. A couple of my colleagues and I are launching the Progressive Teacher Network. And we got that idea out of Foxfire because uh, in the old days when Foxfire had funding across the nation, if someone took a Foxfire course, they were encouraged to go back to their community and to start a network, to be able to pull people together, to talk about practice, to give each other support. And so this progressive teacher network is based on that notion. And also back to the coalition of essential schools. And Jesse, you know those folks, the notion of critical friends for us talking with each other and to create that opportunity to grow together. Not that I'm the expert. I'm just someone that's as curious perhaps as the next person. And how do we move forward to give people support to do that? So more on progressive teacher network as we get it ready to launch. Um, so um, I'll stop there, Jesse. Is that good enough for right now? That's and I live enough. in Los Angeles, and I was joking earlier that we actually have rain today, which is like unheard of in October. Is that the like world's that crazy. It, it, it never rains in Southern California. That's that over <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, um, certainly not in October. No, not in October. Let's think about a couple of things that have been said. One, we mentioned John Dewey. So John Dewey is... Uh, we're talking over a hundred years ago. We're talking right. about, I think it's 1898, John Dewey becomes the head of the uh, American Psychological Association, the NEA. And, and something he said back then that I use in my classes now is we start talking about children have to be ready for school. 
Dewey said children come to school with these native impulses. Unless there's some cognitive uh, issue with them, their brains are ready to learn. And they come, right. they, they're coming, they, they come, they, they have these natural impulses that say, we must communicate, we must construct, we must question, and we must refine. And so in John Dewey, when they used to ask Dewey, uh, what's wrong with schools? They say schools. They're not recognizing those those native natural native impulses that these students did. So John Dewey, yes, we want to bring back that concept. And I, and I want to come back. You mentioned that Firefox was funded. It's sort of like now we're in a nation where we had these wonderful over a hundred. Uh, every state had these national writing projects. Yes. Well, the federal government has stopped funding those. They're all things. gone. Yes. And, and it's almost like Firefox. It's almost like all those things that did it. So I want to bring it back to this point that th there's a massive amount of data that says the only thing that makes a difference in public education, other than income, other than educational uh, background of parents, is the teacher. And, and here's the place we have not been investing or listening or paying attention to and it's our teachers. There's no research that says educational policies have made a difference. There's no research that says high stakes testing has made a difference. There's no research that says there's some perfect program that's made a difference or a curriculum. Teachers. So I think today that's what we're really talking about. I'm talking to two ladies that decided to stay in the thick of the fight. Uh, it could have been nice to hang up your, I don't know, what we call them gloves, shoes, skates, or whatever it is. and drink some tea and watch the sunsets and decided to fight. So Christina, uh, what is it like? Like you're now in Connecticut. You came up here from, I think, North Carolina and, 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 and you arrived in a state that last year, the city of Bridgeport, which is one of our largest and poorest cities in the state, had, 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 had somehow they discovered, I don't know how they discovered it, they only had half the required amount of special education teachers that they were supposed to have. So how are, what message are you doing? You, you had told me like, I'm trying to give people things to, to get by today, not so much theory. So tell us about your work right now. Right now, I, um, I have the, the privilege of actually teaching a population of educators who represent what I was when I started. My husband and I started, uh, we actually left Connecticut in 1991, 92. Uh, returned to North Carolina and um, started a career in teaching, but it was not our original careers. And so I'm grateful to that I have that same population because I know how confused I was. I know how um, I know just how much I didn't know, but I had to fake it until I made it, and that's what I did. And so what I do in the classroom is the first thing I do with this population and in Connecticut, they call it DSAP. Uh, these are, are teacher candidates who are coming from other careers and who are pursuing a graduate degree in special education. And so the one thing that I strive to do is first and foremost, make sure that they understand the significance of their role. I know from experience in my role as a special educator that we're not always considered um, or valued. Uh, and that's across the board. I mean, you can sort of look at that as the reality for all teachers in our current 
climate, but uh, there's this idea that special educators are nothing more than um, babysitters, that we're serving a population who can't learn. And so because of that, that assumption, and I would go so far as saying because of that level of ignorance about our population, uh, we often have special educators who don't value themselves. And so one of the things that I do is number one, I meet my teachers where they are. I know that my curriculum says here, we have to meet students at the graduate level, but when you're working with teachers or aspiring teachers who don't have a background, they don't have a degree in education. I can't meet you at the graduate level because you don't have the undergraduate degree. And so I've got to immediately fill in those gaps for them so that I can focus on that graduate level. The other thing that I do, which is very important to me, is I, I refer to my students as interventionists because when you're a special educator, the expectation now, especially with IDEA, with ASA, Every Student Succeeds Act, we are responsible for understanding how to intervene when there is, uh, when we see a problem occurring, when we see that a child is not um, adjusting well in the school, whether it's socially and behaviorally or academically, our job is to identify what that child needs, what's not working for them and to identify what will work. And so I, the one thing I want my teachers to know immediately is that you're an interventionist and you have to understand what that means uh, for the students you will serve. So um, that's, I wouldn't say that's the short answer, <laughs> but that's the answer. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no simple, there's no simple answers, but think about the richness we have right now that your uh, teachers, the, the, the DSAP teachers or durational shortage teachers, it has been our main go-to for special education teachers these years. We, Connecticut made a, a decision at the beginning, I don't know, maybe the top of the decade, uh, really actually maybe over a decade old, that they were moving away from getting special education teachers as undergraduates. It's almost like they, they create policies and they start pushing schools to change their ways and now everybody almost is a duration shortage teacher in terms of that but think about the richness this is what what i what i when we were having coffee together or we talking i thought imagine 28 years a professor with 28 years experience in the field that you're planning to go into uh, actual field experience yes. most of us are lucky to have a year two three four five maybe before we go into that career. So those students that you have, Cynthia, are definitely blessed students in my mind. So I wanna move to uh, uh, Cynthia now, cause Cynthia, I, I, I thought you should have hung up those ballet slippers long ago, you know, maybe, but now you, you, and we've had this conversation too, because you are two ladies that are recent friendships and collaborators uh, that I have met and, and, and I, I I forget how, I think we met over Facebook or something and we had a conversation, Cynthia, but, uh, and you were talking about some of your, your favorite teachers in Los Angeles who were struggling with principals okay. and wondering what to do. And now you have, you're, you're starting this group called the Progressive Teachers Network. You have no, 
the federal government should be running to you and saying, they should be saying, hey, we got some money to do it. We're going to help you. We're going to give you all the people. Same thing. They should be running to, to Cynthia and say, look, we got money. We got grants. We got all this. Instead, they're running to some crazy, I don't know who they're running to. And they're, they are spending money, but they're not spending money on worthwhile. But you're creating a, a network of uh, progressive teacher educators. And I think you sent me a, one of those memes yesterday that said, you know, every teacher deserves someone to be able right. to talk to. Right. So could you tell us about the Progressive Teachers Network and your idea behind that? Yeah, let, if I can, let me tell you a story of one of my, so most of the folks that I've taught over the last years at Antioch um, are working in inner city LA, that's where the jobs are. Um, and so uh, recently I saw, I got contacted by a student of mine who's been teaching for about three years. And she's in, in Los Angeles Unified School District. And after this third week of school, she's asking everyone, how can I take a stress leave? I'm so stressed, I, I, can't, I can't do this. So I called her and I said, okay, let, what's going on? I've known her for you know the years that she was in our program. Well, she had a lot of stuff going on. There was family stuff, you know, there was the results of the pandemic. There was, you know, family, whatever, a lot, a lot of stuff, along with not feeling supported by your principal, having too much to do in the classroom, blah, blah, blah. So we actually sat down and talked about what she could do to make her life different. And I've always said to my teachers, teachers work too hard. They've got 30 kids in the classroom, 28 kids in the classroom. They're there by themselves. They've got some special needs kids. They've got the kid who doesn't want to be there. Yeah, they've got a whole whatever. And they feel 5,000% responsible for every one of those kids. Well, of course, that's a perfect scenario for burnout. And also, I think the latest research is showing that one of the reasons the teachers are leaving is because of isolation. You know, when you walk into that classroom and you close the door, you're on your own. And so we talked about how you manage that. So one of the things that I've been reading about the folks that do that, what's it called? It's called parkour, that um, obstacle, course, obstacle course work that people do where they jump from building to building. And these folks in Paris, these parkour athletes are at night going into buildings and turning off the lights. They're being subversive and they're working together to do it. They have a plan. So how can a teacher feel like she's not isolated? Well, one of the things that we talked about is going back to that critical friends idea from Coalition of Essential Schools. Who's your buddy? Can you find a buddy in the school? Can you find somebody that you can talk with? Can you create a critical friends group at your school? You know, it's 15 minutes after the end of the school day or 15 minutes during lunch just to have other people to give you a hug and to share one wonderful story. So that's one thing. The other thing that we talked about is how does she get more help in the classroom? She's a second grade teacher. Can she go talk to the fifth grade teacher and say, is there a fifth grader in your classroom who'd like to apprentice in my classroom? Is there a fifth grader in your classroom who's having a hard time reading? But if he or she comes into my second grade classroom and helps my kid read, maybe they'll get better as well. How do you go to the parent-teacher group if there is one? Lots of schools don't have them anymore. But how do you go to the parent-teacher group and say, could you train your parents to be aides for us and to come into the classroom? So those were all things we talked about. Then perhaps the thing that I tell my teachers about all the time, and I'm going to share one more book. I'm an avid reader. This is Alfie Cohn's book, The Homework Myth. 
I tell all my teachers to take the entire pile of homework that they have sitting wherever it is, kitchen table, dining room, wherever, and throw it away and stop giving homework. Not only is it parent abuse, it's teacher abuse. This expectation that we have to constantly give kids stuff to do. And you know, Jesse, you're a literacy person like I am. What's the best homework you could ever assign anybody? Free reading at home by your choice. Not to do a book report, not to sound out words, not to take a test, but just to enjoy reading because we know, and by the way, Jesse, Stephen Krashen says hi. I just talked to Steve yesterday, right? Yeah. The best thing we know about in, in enhancing kids' mental capacity, curiosity is reading fiction. So where do they have time to read fiction? At home as homework. So throw the homework out. So helping teachers manage their lives in the classroom with permission to be subversive, not assigning homework is subversive. Having a fifth grader in a second grade classroom is subversive. Working with other teachers academically is subversive. And the other thing that we're reading about right now, and I just talked to a dear friend of mine who is the one of the um, talent acquisition people for LA Unified. We've been talking about the lack of teachers. They're losing principals. Yes. The principals are leaving the class, leaving the principal position and going back into the classroom. And why are they doing that? For the same reason, isolation, too much to do, too much paperwork, too many data expectations and teachers coming to them saying, I, I don't, ah. they're just one person. So we have these isolated principals that are saying, I'm going back into the classroom where I have more control over my life. So I think we have to be available to teachers to help them think differently about things and to not feel like, I think, Christine, you were mentioning this, that special ed teachers don't have great self-esteem. I think generally teachers don't have self-esteem. We've treated them like crap. And so they don't give themselves permission to be creative and unique and talented in their own right because, well, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Oh my goodness, if I get rid of homework, I'll get in trouble. Really? Really? Look at these poor teachers that are being attacked because of the books they're using in the classroom and the curriculum that they're teaching. And we need to show them that we're there to support them. And that was one of the reasons that we started talking about this progressive teacher network, um, Jesse, because there, there is no place that I know of for teachers to go and pick up a phone. I mean, we're talking about this as, you know, maybe on Monday nights, one of us will be available on the phone nationally to answer a question like I did for my teacher who happened to know me and I happened to have her phone number, you know, give us a call and say, I, I don't know what to do. How, how do I stay in the profession? Because Christina, you said this, 90% of our teachers are there because they love kids. It's all the other stuff that gets in the way. So those are the kinds of things. And, and one other quick thing, Jesse, I think helping teachers understand that there are other folks out there with good ideas. Susan O'Hanian, Alfie Cohn, uh, Diane Ravitch's blog, um, Bad-Ass Teachers, Rethinking Schools, uh, Coalition of Essential Schools, all of those organizations who have good ideas, all the stuff from Edutopia, all those areas where teachers can look to see other, what other teachers are doing and make those connections. Because it's horrible to be isolated. You close that door and it's you. 
That's a lot of responsibility, particularly right now where we're putting so much light and pressure on teachers about CRT and banning books. And it's just one person. So anyhow, so that's, that's, why, that's how Progressive Teacher Network got started in my mind because I was always, you know, I would always say to my students, here's my cell phone number, call me anytime. And I had colleagues like, oh, you shouldn't give your cell phone number to your students. Why not? Yeah. You know, 10 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night when they're trying to figure out what to do, I'm happy to talk with them because I made a commitment. I made a contract with them that I'm there to support them. So it's, it's, it's uh, this all makes sense to me. So now I, I want to bring us to another point because we've been talking about teachers. But I also want to talk about uh, when Cynthia and I were talking, we, she, you were discussing, Cynthia, about uh, some books and some work that you've done with parents and teachers, building sort of a bridge of language to understand uh, the, the distance between teachers and parents who have uh, behavioral issues, children. Could you talk to us about, because that work to me, during this time, like if anybody has been anywhere near any urban public schools or poor rural schools right now, uh, we, we, we might be saying that we have overloaded the classrooms. We, we, we've taken away all the supports the teachers have and, and, and COVID has almost left things out of total control. And, and if there was ever a time for us to do the work, and, and I think you've, you've done that work where you've helped parents and teachers negotiate the language. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that work? Because that to me may be even more important than all the other stuff we're talking about. Yes, one of the things that um, I have spent the last 20 years focusing on is the cultural gap that exists between the school and the home. And for African-American families, the gap is um, even greater because so much of the language that we use inside the classroom, you don't hear in the home. Something as simple as follow directions, remain seated, uh, listen to my instructions. It may sound simple to adults, but when you have a child who leaves a home, where the parent does not use any of that terminology and they go to the school and the teacher uses it, that child, you can't expect that child to understand how to bridge that gap between their behavior and the communication that they have at home and school. And so one of the things that I have strived to do uh, for decades, uh, specifically with writing uh, the books that I've written, um, two of them are about a, a, a student, a kindergarten student named Freddie. And um, Freddie doesn't know how to follow directions. And uh, the book, the way that it was written, it was written to strategically allow both parent and teacher to use it to read it to their child while sort of constructing new knowledge for the child. And so what it's doing is it's giving both parent and teacher a common language. It is establishing a common expectation for the classroom. 
and helping parents and teachers learn how to communicate with one another using those common terms. I um, wrote just with that particular topic, Freddie Learns to Follow Directions, I wrote one about um, the, the, the setting of the story is in school, but I wrote another one where the setting is at home because I wanted, again, parents to understand that there are some responsibilities that you have at home that when you work with your child around rules and expect behavioral expectations, when you do that, you're actually helping them with school. Even though they're not in school, if you understand that managing their behavior, managing their social time, when you do that and you give them that liberty to grow in that area, you are um, indirectly helping them so that when they do get to the school, they don't suffer from so many of the deficits that regrettably so many of our young children are suffering from. I mean, we have kindergartners who are suspended and expelled at the same rate as ninth graders. Um, and this has been going on for years because there are fewer and fewer children are coming in with the social skills necessary, the self-regulation, the behavior, basic behavioral functional skills. They're lacking that. Um, and it's not hard to see. I know whenever I, and this is something I do all the time, when I'm in the grocery store and I'm walking through, I see children in buggies who they, they have their phone, they have the parent's phone, and this is what they're doing. They're staring at it, and this is it. I was walking my dog this morning, and I saw a mother on the phone. Her daughter could not have been maybe three or four. And the mother didn't even realize that on this busy street in downtown Hartford, her daughter had stopped walking. Her daughter had long stopped walking, but she was so busy on her phone that not only did she not notice that her child had fallen behind, but she wasn't taking that opportunity to talk with her child about the things that she sees as they're walking. And so it's the little things like that that fail to um, or that, that result in our children coming to school not knowing basic foundational behaviors because when they are in public, rather than teaching them those behaviors, social behaviors, we just hand them something to keep them busy so that we're not interrupted in what we're doing and they stay busy everybody's quiet, we get back in the car, great. Meanwhile, the teacher is at school and we're told to use uh, daily experiences uh, to help teach math. So I remember several years ago, I was teaching middle schoolers and we were talking about money. None of the students in my class had ever actually exchanged cash at a cash register. So I'm supposed to teach them about money at an, a higher level, of course. They know pennies and nickels and dimes. They can identify it, but not one of those students in that math class had actually exchanged cash. They swipe, they swipe, they swipe. Now imagine you're a math teacher and you have to use 
or you are asked to use common experiences that we have in daily life to help supplement your classroom lesson. You ask your children about the reading recipes. Well, they don't cook, nobody cooks. We get our dinner from McDonald's. So we don't know about a recipe and forget a menu. I mean, we don't have to have a menu. We just look up and say, number one, give me that one. Give me number two. So, so much of what we as educators require in the classroom as experience, just to help us get the curriculum across, children don't have. And so what do you do when your lesson requires them to have some life experiences, just some? Have you ever cooked before? Have you ever read a menu before? Have you ever used cash before? Have you ever played a board game before? And I have found year after year after year, the answer is no. And so teachers have worked to get beyond that. But then when you have issues like the pandemic that came up that completely just um, overwhelmed teachers because we were already filling in so many gaps uh, that children have when they come to school. And so the pandemic created, uh, I don't even know, it, it was like a Grand Canyon size gap in, in their understanding. And when you look at, to Cynthia's point, teachers who are already overwhelmed because we have lives too, we have struggles too, we have issues that we have to overcome. And now we have children coming and the problems that they're arriving to school with are beyond anything that we can help them with because we have our own. And so you have teachers who are just preserving their mind and saying, I can no longer function in a, in a way that maintains my health. So I have to leave this field. Um, and so just knowing that as parents, if we would just meet the teachers halfway, that means when your children, when we take them to the store, put the phone down and ask them to help you shop for some groceries. When you go to pay, have them stand there, use cash once in a while and have them do it. But all we, we need for parents to do is allow their children to have life experiences so that we can use those experiences to help teach and construct new knowledge for them. All right, perfect. So now we wanna come to, I'm gonna give us the, the elephant in the room all the time in, in the United States. And that is that uh, it's been well-documented that we spend 20 to $23 billion a year more on our wealthy uh, uh, affluent schools than we do on our poor schools. So that's one. So the inequity is vast. Uh, when we're talking about teacher sanity, so when Cynthia talks about the need for a progressive teachers network, when uh, uh, Christina, you're talking about teachers just trying to hold themselves together, uh, I've, got, I've got districts in Connecticut saying, well, we care about your self-care. We have an online yoga class for you. Mm -hmm. You know, 
and, and yet now and we're thinking that costs money. So I, I want to come back to what if we what if we had that magic wand? What if we really called it out and said every policymaker who is in a position of power right now has failed us for the past two decades? We have bad, we have spent two trillion dollars on no child left behind, race to the top, and every student succeeds. Our students are scoring lower on stand. I mean, I don't even really care about these standardized measure measures. I'd be hanging out with Alfie Cohen over there. But if that's your benchmark and our students haven't scored this low in over 35 years, then you have somewhere someone has to call them in. So if you had your magic wand, right? Because I'm thinking I'm gonna come to Cynthia, so you're getting ready, Cynthia. I'm thinking about the Firefox experience had wonderful summer experiences, wonderful experiences for opportunities. For teachers to come together, learn together, and and unique experiences. Uh, Appalachia, how to how to build a banjo, uh, you know, uh, how to make a still. I mean, not that I want people to make a still, but you know, they hey. they, they, they there were ways to do this. So right. if you had your magic wand, Cynthia, and and we could somehow direct this United States Department of Education to be creating these 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 maybe summer institutes where teachers could come together what would they look like with progressive teachers what would you like to see yeah well there are so many places to go with that answer jesse you know there's so many things so for example as i'm listening to christina you know one of the things that we know is that if we were smarter about understanding brain research then all of us as adults would understand that as we use our adultism against kids we're not providing them with the opportunity to grow their brains. So if you're constantly telling them what to do and when to do it and how to do it, and that prefrontal cortex doesn't develop well, we end up with all, you know, with, with a bunch of, of problems. I have a dear friend, Dave Nettle, who is doing amazing things in classrooms as a consultant. He works with kids in classrooms, supplementing what they're doing, team building, et cetera. And one of the things that he's seeing as we're talking about the academic divide or the Grand Canyon divide, as you talked about it, Christina, is um, the anger that children are holding and the frustration that they're holding that has nothing to do with their academic skills. It has to do with their social and emotional capacity. So I think um, I watched last night for the first time that new show called um, Alaska uh, Dispatch. Um, it's a show, brand new show about uh, this small newspaper in a small town in Alaska, and uh, it's about the um, the death and the disappearance of Native women. That's the that's the premise of the show. But an underlying story last night was about the anger of people. You know, there's this dispute in the city, and people are fighting with each other. And the kids are angry. Dave was telling me that he, for the first time in all the years he's been working with kids, he had three young boys, second graders, who essentially said, I'm not doing what you're telling me to do. And this is after working with them and knowing them for two years. And, you know, he is just not the kind of person that you would expect that to happen to. So I guess, Jesse, what I, one thing that I would do is to try and figure out why we have such a divide in how we think about the world how we have lost the notion of critical thinking. And if I really could put something into the world, it would be to help people think about the world from a critical perspective. Not that I want people to agree with me, but I want people to be thoughtful about what they're thinking about and to be able to analyze perspectives. That's, 
that's what I think we should be doing in education is to get people to be able to look at things from multiple points of view. You know, take the Neil deGrasse Tyson view of the world and say, okay, I'm I'm a planetary member and you have this belief and I have that belief. And so how do we come together instead of this rancor that has occurred? So if I had a magic wand, I would want our secretary of education, I would want our state secretaries of education to get together and to have a coalition of perspectives on helping people think about multiple points of view and do like the kind of work that Braver Angels is doing. Because Braver Angels is pulling people together across the country to cross discuss from different points of view, but not to be able to attack or to be angry. And I think teachers are in the midst of this. Look at the CRT arguments and the banning books. We're in the midst of that. So if I had a magic wand at that higher policy level, so our, our assistant secretary of education was the former superintendent from San Diego. I, I sort of know her. She was a good superintendent. What has she done? I mean, I'm not being critical of her, but we don't see anything. Mm -hmm. There's no action. Is she out talking? Is our secretary of education talking to teachers and to parents to pull them together? We're all in this together. So that's a very large kind of thing. At the immediate level, remember, Jesse, because you're not as old as I am, but you're, you'll remember this. Remember when the humanities organizations used to pull those summer institutes together? You know, and yeah. uh, Christina, I don't know if you are familiar with this, but we could write um, a proposal for a summer workshop mm -hmm. and it was funded by the feds and teachers could come for free. And I went to two of them in my life as a, as a non-faculty person. They were fabulous, inventive, creative. They were engaged in exactly that, taking classroom teachers out of the classroom and not worrying about writing lesson plans and doing curriculum, but actually learning something new and working with colleagues and learning how to establish those cross-disciplinary conversations. So I would love to see that back in place, Jesse, because all that has gone. Particularly, that should be for our rural and our teachers who are not necessarily living in urban communities, but are working in our least funded schools. Because in LA, I have teachers that are working in private schools where the parents are paying $70,000 a year for their kids. They, they, don't, they don't have the same issues as the teacher who's working in downtown LA with homeless kids, different, different situation. So those are, you know, if, if I were in charge, if I were in charge, you would make you me in charge. charge. Can you make me in yeah. charge? Uh, there, there is Judith Boyce uh, has that poem. If I were in charge of the world, and without exactly. children in the literacy center, we do that all the time. If I was in charge of the world, chocolate right. would be free, ice cream would be a, a health food. You right. know, this right. is the stuff. Lems would fall, would rain from the sky. These are my kids, exactly. you know, over here, and I'm like right there with them. But now we'll move to Christina. If you had your way. If you had this magic wand and you could do something for particularly those DSAP educa special educators in Connecticut who are in the in the in the battle trenches, what what would you propose to do for them? That that and I you know I think there's something to this because I don't think our policymakers are listening. Yeah. Horace Mann, first Secretary of Education, and what did he do? In six years, he visited six thousand of Massachusetts schools. On horseback. All 6,000, 1840, uh, 1852, right. 6,000 of the schools 
we but, can't, you can't get a secretary of education yeah. of the United States of America who says, I have visited 10 in, in, in all the years they've been there. And, we don't and, have that. So and, it's and, the list. Yeah, not having the, because most of the, most of the visits would be to have the camera in front of you, shake right. hands and they exit stage left. So right. it's not even a visit. It's, it's a right. camera. It's staged. Completely yes. staged. It's, it's, and so it's not, you know, right. one of the things that I would say um, uh, that I would do is I would loose the ties that um, assessments have had on us as educators. Mm -hmm. I remember back in, I believe it was 2008, I was uh, working in Charlotte Mecklenburg School Systems and we had two undergraduate students. One, both of them had uh, earned their degrees from Michigan and um, very just, excited about teaching. One was a second grade teacher, the other one a kindergarten teacher. And I remember that year, by the time we got to, I believe it was November, we had been taught 11, 11 different initiatives that the school wanted us to implement. And by the end of the school year, I'll never forget, we were sitting in a meeting and these one, one of the young ladies who was in her first year as a teacher, um, she said, you know, you have me doing everything that I can do to make sure that the children are learning, but I still don't know who my children are. I've been with them for eight, seven, eight months, and I don't know anything about them because my entire schedule is filled with all of these initiatives that you want me to prove that I'm using. So I'm proving to you that I'm using them. Meanwhile, I don't know any of my students and the year is about over. And she said, I feel like I earned a degree to teach, but you won't let me use it. And she was right. We have bound teachers with um, assessments. We have stifled the creativity, the um, joy of just being in the classroom and getting to know our students, getting to know what they need and providing them with it. What I would love to see, and I know it's, you said, you know, Christina, what would you like to see if, if it was your decision? I would like to see where we as educators would be able to use our degree. I mean, I know that's a wild thought, um, but it would be nice to be able to go into the classroom and actually know my students, know them and know what their needs are. I, whenever I, um, of course, you know, my 28th year, my last year in public education, I actually went to the store and bought games. I bought Monopoly games, checker games, chess, all types of card games, taboo, you name it. and we played those games in class and, and here's how I was able to incorporate it and defend it to anybody who walked in. 
I knew that the school, thanks to you know the, the, the results of the pandemic, we had to focus on social emotional learning. We had to incorporate that into our lesson plan and we had to provide evidence of what we were doing. Well, one of the issues that we have with social emotional learning is nobody gets to socialize. So the best way to get our children to socialize, to even understand what they're dealing with emotionally. If I can't, if I can't talk with you, then I can't understand what you're going through. And so we played games. We had groups and they actually had a chance to talk with one another and to enjoy one another's company. I had a chance to get to know my students. And from there, we developed a relationship that helped us to foster the learning that we had to have anyway. So that would be what I would, I would love. Let us do what we were trained to do. So it's it's almost as if uh, uh, it's 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 not a good analogy, uh, but if we look at how the Ukrainians are beating the Russians, the Russians are a centralized military. That um, and war is never a good analogy, but uh, in order to to shoot a, a gun or anything, you you have to go through all the channels of bureaucracy. The Ukrainians are like we trust our soldiers in the field; mm-hmm. they can make. The, in the field so that's it's not a great analogy but i think what mm-hmm. i'm hearing you say christina is trust the professionals you have trained them you have served, they're the most certified most tested teachers in the history of, of of public education right now my elementary teachers who become reading specialists have taken five standardized assessments have have to have before they get their reading consultant they have to have at least five years uh teaching experience under their belt and go through two intensive practicums and you know and and mean somehow do their job so we we've got that base but if i if i'm listening to things because we're down to our last 60 seconds each of people but i hear uh cynthia saying find find places safe places for us to talk i'm hearing christina you saying that you know what uh that testing and those assessments are not as important as allowing children to socialize, uh, let's start trusting teachers. So Cynthia, your 60 second, you know, like final message for us. Yes, progressive teacher network at gmail.com. That's good enough, that's good enough, that's good enough. We need a place to be. And and Christina, uh, your final message, and we, we, hey, we, we have a date again next Thursday to have coffee yes. again. Yes, we do. Okay. <laughs> Nice meeting you, Christina. The same here, the same here. <laughs> I think we're all we're all done. Thank you. What a wonderful, what a wonderful morning to hang out with you, progressive, talented, educated. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road. Let's camera action, I'm ready to go. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah.